Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 25, and we're focusing on the second half of 1976. Last episode, we heard about the Cold War machinations, which had led to Cuba and Russia coming to the assistance of the MPLA in Angola. We also heard about the deployment of black troops inside the SADF for the first time, and how South Africa was now rearming itself as its defense equipment was out of date. 3-2 Battalion had been deployed to the cutline at the border and was highly active, as were SWAPO's plan insurgents. Meanwhile, the diplomatic storm that had broken out over South Africa's invasion of Angola continued to rage, with the OAU breaking its own membership rules to accept MPLA as the official and yet unelected government of Angola. On the security front, South Africa was in chaos. In June 1976, the Soweto uprising shook the Pretoria government with both its ferocity and its unique character. For the first time, black youth living in the townships to the southwest of Johannesburg decided enough was enough and went on the rampage in what was an historic event as they rose up against the apartheid government. After living as second-class citizens, these youngsters decided to try and overthrow the Nationalist Party government. Pretoria's response was equally violent. The police opened fire with live ammunition from the first day, killing hundreds over the next few months as different parts of South Africa experienced similar explosions of anger. Watching all of this was the international community, which was to increase sanctions on Pretoria shortly. While a full arms embargo had still not been enforced, that was only to follow in 1977, Pretoria had effectively entered pariah status already, and most nations were loath to sell weapons of any sort to security forces who were being photographed shooting teenagers in the streets. After Operation Savannah, the government forbade the SADF to cross the border into Angola as it tried to reset relations with neutral African countries, most of whom had been surprised by the extent of the SADF's invasion all the way to the edge of the capital Luanda. That frightened Zambia, for example, which was tinkering with support for the ANC and other liberation movements. South African Air Force aircraft had to stay out of Angolan airspace for two reasons. One was strategic, the other was the fact that the MiG-21s were now patrolling on the other side and the MPLA had also set up SA-2 and SA-3 missiles in the south. But exceptions were made. As I mentioned, 3-2 Battalion was operating along the cutline from their base and Pretoria deemed it acceptable for mainly Black Battalion to clandestinely enter Angola and attack Swapo bases. But they were restricted to a shallow area in the south. That battalion would be so effective in the main operational area of southeast Angola that Swapo actually shifted its bases westwards to the Kuneni province, where the SADF did not have a big presence. As 3-2's commander Jan Breitenbach pointed out, we had to get them off balance, take away the initiative, and act as the spoiler in their attempts to overrun Avamalad. Reconnaissance regiments known as the Rekis were also carrying out secret missions inside Angola, and they ranged further than the 3-2. I'll dedicate an entire future episode to the Rekis as they were a significant organization which was to cause Swapo and other insurgency movements around South Africa quite a bit of trouble. If you peer at a map of this area, you'll be struck by many things, starting with its enormous size. General Jan Kleinhans explained that The area was too big and border was too long. The terrain made it difficult too, flat with no natural lookout points. We did not have the capacity to close the border. It always remained permeable. A more accurate description would be the border leaked like a sieve, both directions. Back in southwest Africa, Pretoria was pretending to follow the spirit of the League of Nations mandate of 1919. While that had been revoked by the International Court of Justice in 1971, as we've already heard, the territory was really a fifth province of the RSA, 
At first, the nationalists were hell-bent on instituting full-scale apartheid in Southwest Africa, but realized eventually that fundamentalist principles of white power and the spotty Bantustans they planned back home was even more unworkable in Southwest Africa. Petty apartheid was introduced instead where blacks were forced to carry passbooks and were unable to purchase property or even start businesses in much of the territory. Local black groups and tribes were becoming more and more radicalized as time went on by the very fact that they had no right to vote and were being oppressed by policemen and soldiers in their own country. Swapo did not have to work very hard to canvass for men and women. Pretoria's actions basically drove the population into the arms of the black nationalist organizations, while there was a constant attempt by Pretoria to control the flow of information. Prime Minister John Forster and his cabinet decided that they would try something different in Southwest after it was clear that they could not enforce hardcore apartheid starting in the mid-70s. He announced that the territory would become independent and abandon the grand scheme of segregating black and white. While I was there in the early 1980s, for example, there were many mixed couples at the hotels of the big cities, which would have shocked all the conservative tunnies of Tablancheland to their core. Admittedly, these were usually German-speaking men with black girlfriends, but the fact that whites and blacks were kissing and drinking vodka together at a Vintuk hotel was quite a surprise for anyone who knows the history of South Africa. Back in Pretoria, Forster received UN Special Envoy Alfred Escher and told him that the South African government fully supported the idea of independence for Southwest Africa. But there was a problem. Swapo regarded any negotiations with Pretoria as a sham. And Pretoria regarded Swapo and its Russian backers as an existential threat, so there wasn't going to be much negotiation there until the late 1980s. The SADF doctrine had changed in the early 1970s. Some I mentioned last week, such as the G5 development and the rattle along with new upgraded fighter aircraft being planned. A raft of other weapon systems were in the pipeline, as you'll hear over the course of this series. Part of this doctrine was enshrined in the idea that one SA infantry battalion, or one SAI as it's known, was to train and test the new mobile philosophy. Savannah had stymied the SADF as the politicians changed tack, interfering in some of the planning and frustrating officers like Breitenbach on the ground, and he grumbled constantly about the lack of a proper objective. As Leopold Skoltz writes so eloquently in his book, The SADF in the Border War, the Defence Force had learned a few more lessons in its fight with Fapla and the Cubans and the Russians. Firstly, there was a fog that descended from the political leadership who weren't completely aligned with what was actually going on. Forster was not a happy camper, as P.W. Boerter and others destroyed the last vestiges of his cunningly crafted African outreach. The aim of future operations into Angola would be precisely formulated, rejecting the kind of incremental fiddling that took place during Savannah. If the SADF was going into a fight in future, it would be with a powerful force and for a limited duration. Savannah had dragged on and on, and that was no way to fight a proper shock-and-awe war. Secondly, the equipment issue would be addressed and immediately. Thirdly, a heavy infantry fighting vehicle was crucial, and thus the rattle about which I spoke last episode. Fourthly, the concept of combat groups and teams drawn from different corps was sound and should be developed. This was a bit of a revolution, as we'll see in upcoming missions. And fifthly, the brigade-level command would become the basic operational combat level, loosening up control and putting that into the hands of officers on the ground. This mobile doctrine began to be developed by Roland de Fris, who you will hear from during this series. There are thousands of men and women who fought, but de Vries is probably one of the most important, becoming the Army's foremost expert on mobile mixed arms operations. 
The SADF also sent several middle-ranking officers on courses with the Israeli Defense Force that had a great deal of experience in mobile mechanized warfare during the wars of 1948-9, 1967, and then in 1973. The SADF also took over the Israeli operational planning cycle, which they perfected during the Six-Day War of 1967 and then the October War of 1973. This planning cycle takes place in real time and means direct liaison is maintained between different staff from various units simultaneously. Armour, infantry, artillery, logistics, air force, navy, these would all come together for initial planning then submit to senior commanders. It was a democratic process which sounds rather weird when talking about command and control. Roland de Vries was one of the main proponents of allowing initiative to devolve downwards to the combat group and even team level. The irony is the MPLA's FAPLA did not have such flexibility as it was now mentored by the Russians who had a central control ethos based in their communist origins. It's illuminating how the capitalist-based SADF faced the communist-based FAPLA and the command structure of the SADF clearly espoused far more egalitarian principles of individual power. Without getting ahead of myself here, just think about the contradiction of that sentence. FAPLA was supposedly fighting for the rights of the majority using a military structure that implies centralized control and definitely was run on non-democratic principles. The SADF was fighting basically for the rights of a minority but imbued with a decentralized democratic principle. Strange but true. Military history is peppered with these oddities, as you'll also hear in another recent podcast series of mine called The Battle of Stalingrad. That's where the Soviets eventually realized that they should devolve power to the officers rather than over direct operations from a thousand miles away. It's opposite of what Adolf Hitler was doing, managing the battles day by day, minute by minute. And yet, that wasn't the case when it came to Swapo and Unita. While the Cubans and Fatla power of command were centralized, in Swapo and Unita, they were loosened with devolution of power to lower-ranking officers. Savannah had proven the success of the SADF's new ideology of allowing lower-ranking officers to make significant decisions on the ground, even with the frustration of Breitenbach taken into account. So the SADF set up the Commission of Investigation into the Future Planning of the SADF, with Yanni Hildenhess in charge. His report after Savannah emphasized the influence of what he called the space factor, where South Africa faced heavily armed enemies like the MPLA, but these were some distance away from the country itself. Southwest Africa was the buffer zone. Night fighting became crucial, so too ideas of how to cope with a long coastline. Without decentralization of command, there would be no success in warfare, as the units facing immediate action were so far away. Roland de Vries knew this, but he also knew that any future action where conventional warfare was admixed with non-conventional had to be characterized by a force with devastating firepower. So did Janni Heldenes. As he writes in his autobiography called At the Front, substantial changes were made to battle techniques and procedures. One was the 127mm multiple rocket launcher, a copy of Russia's Stalin organ. Back in Avomberland, the SADF patrols were bumping into Swapo insurgents, and 3-2 Battalion was conducting clandestine cross-border action at times. And because this is Africa, sometimes an elephant would trip a mine, and others the elephant would go on the offensive. For example, somewhere in the Kabango, close to the Zimbabwe border, where a patrol came across a herd of elephants late in 1976. Heldenhase recounts how the herd reacted badly to being disturbed and charged in the rush to escape the radio operator dropped his radio and climbed a tree. The elephant duly approached the device, which was hissing and crackling, and proceeded to flatten it. When the patrol returned to Rundu, the quartermaster demanded the radio be found and returned. So patrol members duly sent the crushed radio back to him, mailed in a large envelope. 
As Calvin Hayes notes in his book At the Front, March 1976 was the period that saw Swapper insurgencies increase. We went over some of these incidents last podcast, but they were facing some pressure from the MPLA, who demanded that Swapper assist Fapla in the fight against UNITA in the southeast of Angola. Swapo's military wing plan then increased the network of training camps and bases in southern Angola and stepped up incursions through December 1976. I explained previously how the summer rains, which began in October and November, created thick bush and wetlands, which are difficult to cope with for a mobile mechanized army. But it was ideal for a foot soldier slogging his or her way to the south in order to attack a farm or blow up a power pylon or shoot a traditional leader. It's hard perhaps to understand just how the environment changes in this region. During winter it's dry, the dust hangs in the air, and the vegetation thins out, you can see for miles. In summer, the vegetation becomes so dense you can only see 30 or 40 meters away until you walk into a salt pan or wetland. Then all vehicles have a big problem. The mud is a bit like the steppe of the Ukraine. It's almost impossible to move through for even vehicles with tracks. As the December attacks increased, intelligence was then received by South Africa that the frontline states of Tanzania, Zambia, Mozambique and Angola were planning a wave of insurgency across the region starting in early 1977. By December 1976, PLAN was focusing its energies on traditional leaders inside northern Southwest Africa, executing many, abducting some, intimidating others. These men were largely well disposed towards the South African administration. They were paid as administrators, after all. So Swapo was sending a message to all in the region, do not collaborate with the white oppressor. The SADF then sent a counter-message, do not collaborate with the terrorists. And the traditional leaders were caught between the two. So a lull in fighting was reported between July and December when activities began picking up again. On the 6th of December, two insurgents crossed into a Vumberland from Angola but ran into a patrol before they could carry out their assigned tasks to assassinate traditional leaders. One was killed in the firefight, a second wounded. On the same day, another Swapo group kidnapped Chief Zachariah Kaniman and his daughter from the kraal near the Angolan border. A day later on the 7th, Deputy Chief Hasiki Nkali was shot dead by Swapo, and the son of a local chief called Willapard Nkali was abducted and marched into Angola. There were another four days of no action, only to be broken at that point by the UN Commissioner for Southwest Africa, Sean McBride. He popped up on various world television channels to warn about a non-existent pending invasion of Angola by the SEDF. Thinking about this later, this bloke actually worked as a form of counterintelligence for the South Africans in a way, as he spouted complete baloney about the SEDF while simultaneously talking up their capacity. Helicopters all over the show, sophisticated weapons, artillery, hundreds or perhaps thousands of armored cars, all gunning their engines in the Caprivi Strip, waiting to invade Angola. Naturally, the MPLA and Cuba needed to caucus with Swapu about what to do next. Of course, there were no sophisticated SADF weapons, artillery, armored cars or helicopters circling southern Angola. The real story was planned insurgents were just north of the border taking a position on the opposite side of the SADF on Angolan soil, then opening fire on SADF patrols moving on the southwest African side along the cut line, and of course, vice versa. While most of these exchanges ended with only bullet holes in the acacia thorn trees, on one such occasion, Corporal Benjamin Skuman of Portgitasras was killed when his temporary base on the border was hit by automatic weapons fire. The border war of 1976 rumbled to an end, and 21 South Africans had died in action through the year. 31 others were killed in various incidents and accidents. As we'll hear next episode, 1977 would start with an ominous series of events. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. You can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham or through the website abwarpodcast.com. 
Until we meet again, bye bye.